The scripture reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It can be found on page 837 in the Black Bibles. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they had questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? but that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. The word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Kathleen and Gil. Thank you, Tim, as well, uh, for leading us. Uh, Let's pray as we look now into God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for how you speak to us through the Scriptures. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to believe, empowered uh, by the Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You had one job. You ever heard that? It's kind of become a meme, you know, these days. Um, it's, it's become my favorite, uh, actually my favorite segment on College Game Day on ESPN on Saturday mornings, you know, where, you, you know, where, where one person has like one thing to do and, and they kind of mess it up. I, I had this happen to me in my life where I had one job and, and I didn't get it exactly right. And, and the fact that I still remember it is, is significant because this was in 2006, 2006, my youngest son's fourth birthday party. Uh, we were going to have this birthday party at a park uh, close to our house, and Shannon was in charge of like 99.9% of it, as it should be. You know, she had made the cake, she had, you know, gotten the decorations, she had gotten the, the supplies, she had gotten the party favors, she had sent out the invitations, all of that. I had literally one job. My job was the piñata, um, and I was excited about this job. This was an important job. Went to Walmart. Walmart had a lot of piñatas. I bought a, a one that I thought that all four-year-old boys would really like. Uh, he was inviting like all the boys from his class at, at his school. Uh, I, I got a blindfold. I cut down a broomstick to perfect, you know, four-year-old size. I sanded it off so that it was, you know, safe. I was ready. This was going to be awesome. Hung the piñata up on a tree branch, perfect size, just right. Now, 
having a pinata at a birthday party is a little bit uh, of an iffy proposition because what if the first kid that takes a whack at it is like really big and strong and like breaks the thing open and then other people don't get to you know swing and, and then everybody's crying right that's not a good scene uh, and so you know we were just hopeful that this would work out and it actually worked perfectly it was beautiful every kid got to take a couple whacks at it and it was loosening up, but still intact in time for the birthday boy. My son, Andrew, at four years old, puts on the blindfold, grabs the stick, takes a swing, whack, perfect, R centers it right up. And you could tell it's just about to break open. All of these other boys are crowding around. They're like hyenas at the edge of the grass, you know, getting ready to pounce. One more good swing would do it. And one more good swing did do it. Whack! Hits it again. A big hole opens up. And all these boys start to pounce because the candy's going to fall out. But nothing falls out. And uh, at this point, Andrew had taken his blindfold off because he wanted to pounce on the candy too. And he's like, what's going on here? So he whacked it again, actually twice. Whack, whack, makes the hole even bigger. Nothing falls out. He grabs it and he starts to shake it. And that, this was the point at which my, my very gentle and sweet wife leaned over to me and said, you put candy in there, right? And I said, I bought the pinata. I mean, these things have candy in them when you buy them. No. Public service announcements. Pinatas sold at Walmart are empty. Okay? You have to buy and put your own candy in there. Otherwise, you know, four-year-olds you know, create a big gaping hole in it and nothing falls out. Uh, and, and, and why do I tell you this story? Strangely enough, in many respects, this story, true story, it has become like a metaphor, you know, for my life. It's become like a metaphor for, uh, in, in some ways, my life of ministry. Because, you know, one of the things that I walk through a lot of you with, and one of the things that you walk alongside me with, is that we are constantly beating at these pinatas in our life. And a lot of times we believe that if I could just break a hole open in this one thing in my life, if this one thing could happen in my life, then I would be whole. Then I would be okay. Then things would be okay. I get the job. We beat at it. We beat at it. We beat at it. We beat at it. It opens up and you get the job. But then what happens? You actually understand that it's kind of empty, Right? You may want to find that guy, find that girl. You think, if I could just find the one, if I could just not be alone. And then you realize, man, relationships are really hard, you know. And it's not as fulfilling as you think it's going to be. Or buy the home, the dream home, the perfect house. But it's in Houston. And there are hurricanes and floods. Get into that dream school. Everything you've been working for since you were in like 8th grade. You've put your friends, you've put your relationships, maybe even you've put your relationship to the Lord kind of on the back burner. Because I need this thing. If I just get this one thing, I'll be okay. And the acceptance letter comes in and you go and then you realize you've been sacrificing all the wrong things. We have a tendency in our lives to beat at these pinatas, these one central thing that we think that if we can just make it happen, if we can just break it open, everything will be okay. Now, there's a reason why the things on this earth that we long for, that we think are going to meet our deepest needs, don't actually meet our needs. They don't fulfill us. And that is that they weren't designed to do that. They weren't. 
Only Jesus can fill the hole that we have, the ultimate deep longing that we have in our lives. And whenever we try to find our fulfillment, ultimately, in something other than God, we are bound to be empty and hurt in the end because we are misusing it. We're misusing that thing, trying to, you know, have it provide meaning ultimately in our lives. And in Mark chapter 2, Jesus gives this emptiness and this hurt, this pursuit, a name. He names it sin. Sin is our rebellion against God. Our rebellion against God and our rebellion against his standards, both in things that we do and things that we fail to do. And sin lies at the heart of everything that is not the way it is supposed to be in this world. Our broken relationships, our broken bodies, our broken homes, the, the world that we can very easily see is broken all around us. And the severity of sin lies at the heart of what is most surprising about this passage. Because what is most surprising about this passage is Jesus's remarkable and straightforward claim that this man who was paralyzed, his greatest need was not the healing of his body. That's very surprising. His paralysis was a big problem, but it was not his biggest problem. His biggest problem was the same as all of our biggest problem, that we are unreconciled to God due to our sin. So what I want us to do this morning is to walk through this passage, to view it through the lens of everything we've already learned about in the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the King over all creation, that he has the power to reconcile all things. We will see both our souls and also our bodies. He invites us to participate in his kingdom by submitting ourselves to him through faith. Now, there's a barrier to doing that, and the barrier to doing that is called sin. So Jesus has to make a way past that barrier, and that is what we see in this passage. And we'll go through it under three categories. First, the request. Second, the response. And third, the resolution. So first, let's look at the request. This is one of my favorite scenes in all of the Bible. This may be a familiar story to you, it may not be, but you have to kind of put yourself in the scene for this to truly make sense. Jesus has announced back in chapter 1 that he is the, the, the king who has come to inaugurate the kingdom of God. The time is at hand, the time is fulfilled, repent and believe in the gospel. And then he has demonstrated that the kingdom of God is present by casting out demons and by uh, healing people of, 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 of diseases and other things like that. He's made a name for himself. People, there's buzz. There's buzz out there about Jesus. Have you heard about this guy who can cast out demons and who can heal people? So he goes home, or either to his home or a home. It's kind of hard to tell. Uh, and, he, and he begins to teach, and there's buzz about him. So a ton of people come in, and they're crowding around in the house, so much so that, that people couldn't actually get in the house. So they're gathered around outside. They're leaning in windows. They're trying to, you know, they're kind of straining, trying to hear Jesus teach. And Jesus is teaching them. And all of a sudden you hear an unexpected noise. Scratching, clawing, maybe a little bit of pounding. You know, you can see Jesus, he's teaching. And he looks up at the roof and dirt falls on his face. Because there's a group of people on top of that roof breaking a hole in it. 
And, you know, for most of my life, I thought this was like straw or something, you know. This is not straw. People actually in the first century slept on top of their roofs in the summer because it was too hot to sleep inside. So it's sturdy up there. Wood beams with clay tiles covering it. So people could walk around up there. They could sleep up there. It's sturdy. It's a real roof. And somebody is up there breaking a hole in it. Dirt's falling on the floor. It takes a little while. It's not like an instantaneous thing. And then there's a little hole in the roof and somebody sticks their head down there and he's looking around. Yeah, okay, there's Jesus, you know, maybe a little bit more to the left. Pulls his head back up, keeps pounding on the roof, right? Until this gaping hole is big enough for them to lower a human being down on, with ropes on a mat and set him at Jesus' feet. Now, when this man is lowered at Jesus' feet, the request is explicit without it being spoken. Everybody knows what the request is. Jesus had just been healing people. They had heard about this. He's paralyzed. They lower him down. The request is that he be healed. And this request, you see, is rooted in an assumption. The assumption was that this was the one thing that this man lacked. This is the one thing their friends believed that their friend lacked in order to be made whole. If he could only walk, then all would be well again. Now, of course, this man was in a deep and desperate predicament. Absolutely. His paralysis was a horrendous life circumstance, and Jesus does address it ultimately. He does. But he doesn't start there. That's the, weird, that's the weird part of this passage. Everybody knows what they want to be done, and that is not where he starts. He starts by actually challenging the assumption. The assumption is that this is the only thing that I need, and if this thing happens to me, then I'll be okay. That's the assumption that Jesus challenges. And of course, we are like this man in so many ways. Think about it for just a second. You probably have this right now in your own life. There's probably one thing lingering out there in your heart and in your own life where you think, if I can just get this one thing taken care of, if I can just have this one thing, then I will be whole. Maybe you think if I could just find that right person and get married and not be lonely and have someone to walk through this life with, then I'll be fulfilled. But some of you are probably at a place where you're thinking the opposite thing. If I could just get out of this relationship that, if I, that I'm in, if I could just get out of this marriage, if I could just be on my own for a little while, if I could just find someone new, then I'll be fulfilled. Or you might be thinking, I really hate my job. I really hate it. And if I could just find something that fit me better, something that I'm passionate about, something that is meaningful to me, then I'll be fulfilled. And some of you are in the position of this man who is lowered down at the feet of Jesus. And it could be very serious. And you could be thinking, if my body could just be healed, if I could just be rid of this cancer, then everything will be just as it should be. But is it ultimately true? One of my favorite films of all time, probably definitely in my top five, uh, is the movie Chariots of Fire. It's the story of Eric Little who is a uh, athlete uh, he's Scottish he's competing for Great Britain in the 1924 Olympics in 
in Paris, and ultimately after that he becomes a missionary to China. And one of Little's kind of his friends slash rivals, you know, a friendly rivalry was a man named Harold Abrams. Harold Abrams ran the 100 meters, and he was extremely, extremely fast. Eric Little ran for the glory of God and because it brought joy. Harold Abrams ran because if he didn't, he couldn't make sense of his life. Everything for him was making meaning for his life. And so he had this series of goals. And every time he met them, he would feel feel satisfied for a moment, but then it would have to be on to the next one because he couldn't rest. So win this race, check. Okay, what's next? Set this perfect, set this time in a race, check. And he went on and on and on, even until he was at the finals of the Olympic Games in 1924. And he confessed to his friend Eric Little that he didn't feel excited, he didn't even feel nervous, that the greatest feeling he had before his 100-meter final was, get this, dread. That's what he felt. He felt dread. And the reason why he felt dread right before that race was that he said this, he confessed this to his friend, I have 10 seconds to validate my existence. I have 10 seconds to validate my existence. If I win, I'm okay for just a little while longer. If I lose, everything falls apart and I have nothing to hold on to. Jesus knows that that is how we very often approach our lives. And that's why in this scene, he gets to the heart of the matter very quickly. And here it is that we see his response. Now, Jesus wasn't dumb. Certainly he was not. He was not naive either. He knew the expectation. He knew what the request was. He knew that in breaking a hole in the roof and lowering this man down, the request was a physical healing. But this is where we see the surprising turn in the text because he looks at this man who was lying at his feet and it says, Upon seeing their faith, he said, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, can you imagine that scene? The paralytic man lying at the feet of Jesus, looking up at him. The men who had just torn a gaping hole in the roof and probably incurred some financial cost to obligate themselves to repair it at some point, leaning over, looking down. And the words that you hear are, your sins are forgiven. I can imagine that that man lying at the feet of Jesus going, what? Uh, Jesus... Perhaps you missed the point of all of this trouble that we just went through. My problem is not sin. My problem is that I can't walk. Think about it this way. Think about if you came to my office one afternoon this week and you had a, you had a deep, desperate problem in your life. Maybe, maybe your marriage is at the point of breaking. Maybe one of you has contacted an attorney and maybe this thing is on the cliff and it is just like just needs a little nudge for it to be pushed over into something irrevocable and tragic happening in your life and you come to me to talk about it and I listen to you and I hear your story and at the end of your story I look at you and I say your sins are forgiven what would you think right then I think you would think two things one you would think What are you talking about? That is not the point here. The point is here that something horrible is happening in my life and I need help. And second, who are you to say that in the first place? 
Who are you to forgive sins? Only God can do that. And that right there is exactly the point. That is exactly the point. Because there was one group of people who was standing in that crowd who understood exactly what Jesus was saying in that moment. They are described as the scribes. They are religious leaders. They are experts in the Old Testament. They are experts in the Bible. They are biblical experts. And they know what Jesus just said. Because, verse 6, some of the scribes were there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? Why is he blaspheming? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now that's an excellent question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Nobody. Nobody. Nobody can forgive sins but God alone. The scribes were right. They knew that. Either Jesus had the power and the authority to forgive this man of his sins, or he was blaspheming because he was claiming to be able to do something that only God can do. So he's claiming to be God, explicitly. So don't let this claim of Jesus pass you by. Constantly, over and over and over and over again, the Gospel of Mark is pushing us to come to a conclusion about who Jesus is and to act on the conclusion that we come to. The scribes, these religious leaders, they were certainly willing to act on the conclusion that they came to. They heard loud and clear that Jesus was claiming to be God in saying those words. And they came to the conclusion that this man is a blasphemer, he is dangerous, and he needs to be gotten rid of. And it was right here from this point that they began to contemplate uh, and, and to plot an arrest and ultimately an execution of Jesus. But the claim is this, and this is what we have to see. That your greatest need above all else, regardless of the severity of any other need in your life, and they could be very serious, is that sin separates you from a relationship with God. And if that relationship with God is not resolved, if your sins are not forgiven, that your relational separation from God will ultimately become permanent and even eternal. But the question is this. Can Jesus really do anything about it? Does he really have the authority to forgive sins? Can he really give you new life and a new mission in your life? And here finally we see the resolution. Jesus says... And what the text says, that Jesus discerned the thoughts of their hearts. The, 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 the religious leaders didn't say those things out loud. They thought it. Jesus discerned the thoughts of their heart, which is something that only God can do also. And he asked them a question back in verse 9. Which is easier to say, Jesus asked, your sins are forgiven or rise, take up your bed and walk. Now I had about a day where I contemplated that question. It's an interesting question. The answer to me is, I don't know which is easier to say, you know. They both seem like pretty darn hard things to say, you know. I can't say either one of them, neither can you. And I believe that that really, in some senses, is the point. Jesus is the king over all creation. He is the king over his creatures holistically. He doesn't only say to this man, get up and walk. But he also doesn't only say to this man, your sins are forgiven. 
You see, the brokenness of sin in some senses is the tearing apart of our bodies and our souls. Jesus puts everything that is broken back together. He restores our relationship to God by offering forgiveness through faith. But he's not done with your body. He is not done with your body. Your ultimate hope if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, your ultimate hope is not that you are going to die and that your soul is going to be released from your body and you're going to float around without your body you know, for all eternity like a cloud. That is not what the Bible teaches. Your ultimate hope is that when Jesus returns, your body and your soul will be reunited together, brought together the way that it was supposed to be, and that you will dwell for all eternity on a very physical new heaven and a new earth. That's our hope. But Jesus knows his audience here. It's an audience of skeptics. It's an audience of people that are skeptical of his claim to be able to forgive sins. So stick with me here for just a second. That being the case, it is probably easier, right, for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Well, because that's non-demonstrable. You can't prove that one way or the other. Jesus could say your sins are forgiven, and you don't know whether that actually happened or not. But, on the other hand, if he says, rise, take up your bed, and walk, well, now that's a moment of great climax and tension right there, isn't it? Because it's either going to happen or it's not going to happen. So, he's making a claim to have a power to heal that is either going to be successful or it is going to fail. So when Jesus speaks those words to that man, that is the climactic moment. That is the point of greatest tension in this entire episode. Rise, take up your bed, and walk. Everybody takes a deep breath in. Nobody breathes out. Nobody talks. Nobody even moves. Because they're all going, what's going to happen? This is crazy. And what happens? He stands, he takes up his bed, and he leaves, praising God the entire way. So two massively important things happen here. First, Jesus heals this man. He makes his body whole. You know, interestingly, this man's body that was made whole disintegrates again. He does ultimately die. Even Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead, died a second time. So he heals him of his paralysis. It's an act of mercy. But it's ultimately a foreshadowing of what is going to come, that bodies and souls of those who trust in Jesus are going to be reunited. They're going to be made whole. They're going to be brought together and disintegrate no more. Jesus has come to redeem all things, not just souls, not just bodies, whole people, bodies and souls. But second, he has proven to his skeptics in that moment that he can, in fact, do what only God can do, which is forgive sins. He is, therefore, God. And this leaves every single one of us with the same choice that all of those people there faced at that moment. How are you going to respond to this one who claims to be God, who claims to be able to redeem all things? How are we going to respond to him? The paralyzed man, previously paralyzed, stands up and walks away praising God. The religious leaders 
believe that this man is too dangerous not to be destroyed. And so they plot his destruction. But then there are the crowds, right? All this rest of these people that are gathered here. What does the text say about them? Well, the crowd, the text says, were amazed and glorified God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Now on the surface, that sounds like a pretty solid response, right? Pretty solid. But remember what just happened. Jesus had just made an explicit claim to be God. He just made an explicit claim to have the power to forgive sins and to meet our greatest need and their greatest need. What would ultimately be the response of someone who truly grasped that? Rushing to him, bowing before him, falling flat on your face before him, saying, Jesus, I am a sinner too. My greatest need is my sin. Heal me of my sin. Forgive me too. But nobody did that. They basically said, cool, that was awesome. When Jesus fed the 5,000 people with only a couple of loaves and a couple of fishes, do you know what the crowd said? Cool. That was awesome. And when Jesus, you know, healed people of their other, you know, illnesses and when he drove out demons, do you know what the crowd ultimately said? Cool. That was awesome. But you know what they didn't do? They didn't bow the knee to him. They didn't fall at his feet. They didn't beg him for forgiveness. They didn't beg him to restore their relationship with God. But this passage is written here that we may be confronted with the same choice as that crowd. How will you respond to Jesus? Will you bow down today and worship him? Will you lift up your heart to Jesus today and say, you have the power to forgive sin. You have the power to meet my greatest need. You are God and you offer forgiveness freely by your grace. Yes, forgive me. Restore me to relationship with God, my Father in heaven and unite my body and my soul in eternal life on that day on that day where sin will be no more Jesus please Jesus meet my greatest need let's pray Lord Jesus we thank you that you have the power to forgive sin and the power to heal that you bring that together in a way that gives us hope that on that day that you return where sin is no more, our bodies and souls will be reunited. We will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Help us, Father, walk out of this place on this morning like that man who was previously paralyzed did, praising you, being your ambassador, telling everyone what you have done for us. We ask it in your name. Amen.